All of us are on a journey of becoming, a never-ending journey in pursuit of truth and deeper union with the divine. Many of you know that faith is a complicated thing and that our journey of becoming can be both difficult and painful. Far too often, we have not been given a space where we can safely address the complications and issues that arise naturally. My name is Joshua Patterson. My good friend Greg Ferrand and I are also on this journey of becoming. We are both dedicated to inviting you into our journeys and creating a space where questions and critical thinking are welcome. We want to take an honest look at the issues and questions so common to this shared journey that we all find ourselves on. We want to genuinely seek out what it means to follow Jesus in our ever-changing world, in our unfolding and expanding universe, and in our pluralistic society. We have come to know that doubt is not the enemy of faith, but rather that both doubt and curiosity are two of our biggest allies. We have learned that the Christian faith is more about wisdom and love than it is about correct doctrine or belief. And we believe that we are being invited to continually seek out both wisdom and love, renewing our minds, expanding our hearts, and rethinking our faith in the process. Thank you for joining us on that journey. All right. Well, welcome to another episode of the Rethinking Faith podcast. As always, I'm one of your hosts, Josh Patterson. And with me today is my good buddy, Greg Farrand. Greg, what's going on, bro? Doing all right, man. Doing all right. How are you doing? Chilling. Yeah. I Actually, it's exciting. So before we started recording this, I just put up our, you know, the first Rethinking Faith episode uh, that we've done together. All so right, man. We're official now. When, you we're know, bona fide. Now weird because people are listening to this in the future and so like it's, <laughs> it's space-time continuum it's physics it's right it's... stephen hawking <laughs> so i'm getting <laughs> jacked up but we'll just just remind the listeners you know the eternal present that we're good you know so but yeah that's that's up we're running um what's it been three months since uh rethinking faith has been a thing so exciting um so yeah thank you if you're listening to this thanks for coming back and being patient with us and um Greg, thank you again. What is this like our fifth or sixth episode we've recorded together? Yeah, it's been already. It's just such a joy, man. And it's been so freaking rich. I can't believe the places we've gone to in the, in these in these conversations. Yeah, for sure. I'm excited. Well, dude, um, I'm excited today for our interview. Before uh, we jump in, I do want to do that little weird call to action thing <laughs> once again <laughs> and just remind people that we are going to Theology Beer Camp. Uh, it is going to be in North Carolina, Chapel Hill specifically, and that's hosted by um, Homebrew Christianity, uh, our buddy Trip Fuller. There's going to be, it's the God Pod edition, right? So it's going to have a bunch of really cool podcasts there, you know, way cooler than ours. So I'm excited to <laughs> to nerd out and hang out with uh, all of our friends and some really cool uh, scholars will be there. Um, you know, let's see, like people have been on the show before. Tom Ward will be there. Uh, Jared and Pete from Bible for Normal People, Brian McLaren, uh, will be hanging out. Uh, unfortunately, Trip will be there and we have to put up with him, but that's okay. <laughs> um, <laughs> so it should be a lot of fun. And if you guys want to go, you can go to, um, uh, goodness, theologybeer.camp and register. And we have a code for you for $50 off, which is just one word rethink. 
So if you use code rethink, you can uh, yeah get $50 off. We'll love to see you guys. It's going to be a blast. Um, I'm brewing a special beer for it. Uh, Full Tilt has allowed me to, to brew it a special beer for the event that we're calling hashtag process party. So <laughs> <laughs> that'll be <laughs> a lot of fun and, uh, and nerdy. So hoping to see everybody there should be fun. Well, all right. Now that that's done, let's go ahead and bring our, our guests and who have been sitting here so patiently uh, who just got blindsided by beer talk, right? We didn't even warn them that that was going to be a thing. <laughs> I'm here. I'm here for the beer pretty, talk. Pretty early uh, for beer, but I, but I like it. <laughs> there, well, there we go. So that's the voice of, I'm going to do my best. Ben Stern, uh, Sternke. Nice and job. I'm, I feel like I'm going to screw up your last name, Matt. Is it Matt? Is it Teb? Teb? Yes, Teb. it's Teb. I've been called, <laughs> I've been called all those, yes. Okay, but, uh, which... Usually it's Tebby. Tebby, Matt Tebby. All right. Good deal. Well, thank you guys uh, for hanging out with us um, and, and agreeing to come in and join the show. Uh, before we kind of jump into um, your new book, which, by the way, congratulations, that just launched. Mm -hmm. That's exciting. Yeah. Um, can you guys both just like share a little bit about uh, who you are and like what kind of stuff you find yourselves doing so our listeners can get familiar? Sure. Yeah. Um, so, uh, I'm Ben and, um, I, so Matt and I do a lot of things together. So we wrote a book together. Uh, we co-founded, uh, an organization called gravity leadership, uh, together where we coach and train Christian leaders and, and pastors. That's kind of where the book, uh, sprung from. We can maybe get into that, um, as we start talking today. Um, Matt and I also, along with another, um, guy co-pastor a church uh, here in the Indianapolis area so it's kind of what we mainly get up to what um, what I get up to I've got four kids um, ages 24 22 18 and 17 and um, so and a little tiny little dog um, that sometimes barks in the background um, so yeah that's a bit of what uh, a bit of what I get up to uh, every day yeah. What'd you add to that, Matt? Uh, I don't. I have different kids than Ben. Oh, I've got a. Yeah, I got true. a fourteen-year-old and a ten-year-old. First day of school. That's why I was a couple minutes late getting kids on buses this morning. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, been married twenty-two years in a month, and uh, it's good to be here, man. Well, we're excited to have you all here, and and your book, uh, having the mind of Christ. You know, obviously, that's a. Uh, a rich concept that's inherently uh complex mystical and riddle-like uh in in its depth and so i'm excited for y'all to to dig into that um i guess i guess before we dig into the specific content and kind of splash around in the heart behind it what kind of out of your stories like right these these ideas of right first of all writing a book we know is challenging it's exhausting it takes a lot uh, of energy and commitment so we don't just do it you know, on the fly or uh, willy nilly, like it's, it's born out of passion. So what was it in your stories? Uh, what was it in your life journeys that kind of inspired you to feel like you wanted what was brewing in your guts to kind of emerge in this way? Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think for both of us, we had sort of got to that place. That's probably familiar with you too. And maybe some of your listeners of just, you know, faith, Faith isn't working. This the way I've conceived of 
the Christian life, the way I've put this all together, the way I've understood God or the Bible or faith, uh, it's losing its coherence and it's losing sort of the uh, persuasiveness over me. And so I think it was this watershed moment for me, at least, where I was like, well, I need to either reclaim or recover a faith that I believe in or, you know, find something else to do with my life. <laughs> and so, uh, you know, like most people who go through what's commonly referred to as deconstruction, like, I don't know anybody who seeks that out. It sucks. You lose friends. You lose, sometimes you lose a job. Sometimes you start a podcast <laughs> and, uh, you know, and no one, no one actually goes looking for it, but when it finds you, you have choices to make and not everyone has the same choices for Ben and I, it was, how do we strip this down to the studs, go back to Christ have other people help us look at Christ with fresh eyes and and rebuild or reconstruct something that we believe in, you know, that we can believe in. Uh, and so that for for us, it was more like survival. What would you would you add to that, Ben? Yeah, I um I think in in broad strokes that that really does name it. I think um some of what catalyzed some of the specific stories, I think, that catalyzed some of that uh, work of deconstruction uh, were just, you know, stories of uh, hurt uh, in the church and in Christian organizations, um, sort of seeing, uh, you know, how the sausage is made, so to speak, and just thinking like, you know, like, do I have to sear my conscience and just and just admit that this is normal? Or is there a better way to inhabit, you know, what it looks like to be a Christian leader? Um, can we actually follow Jesus as leaders or do we have to set aside, you know, faith convictions in order to sort of get stuff done? Um, and so I think it was some of those uh, crises uh, as well um, that that prompted some of this work. It wasn't all like, you know, uh, cognitive. It wasn't all just right. like the ideas don't work. It was more like, wait, my like there's things that bother me about the way the church is functioning. There's things that bother me about the way that I have been taught to talk to people about Jesus and and lead others in pastoral ministry and all kinds of other stories. And so there's there's a few like, I think there's probably a few watershed moments uh, along the way that uh, caused us to um, realize that we had to rethink what it meant to follow Jesus, what it meant to be uh, a Christian. Yeah, for sure. And I mean, I know that that, um, you know, kind of fits with my own story as well. Uh, just because I don't know how <laughs> you guys aren't, aren't too familiar with uh, with me and my story, but I I was a pastor. Um, I I worked for Youth for Christ straight out of college. Um, mm -hmm. Did that for about a year. You know the whole like fundraise your own salary thing, uh, which is a really crazy thing to <laughs> try to do when you graduate college and are getting married. Um, <clears throat> but I be I did that for about a year, and then I became a pastor and I moved to a church in Florida, in South Florida. I'm in um, Maryland. That's where I'm from. Uh, so my wife and I moved. And I had an absolutely terrible experience mm. that kind of um, kind of messed me up. And then I, you know, I left that church, I went to another church. That one um, had some more positives about it, but also was just very negative experience. And then I was like, all right, fine. One more chance, God, at this church nonsense. And so I moved back to Maryland. I uh, got a, a gig at an awesome church in Montgomery County uh, that I have nothing negative to say about it was very healing uh but the damage was already done so to speak and mm. so i ended up stepping away from being a pastor just because i felt like it wasn't healthy for myself 
Um, and also I couldn't lead other people in a way that was healthy for them. Yeah. And, um, a big part of that was I had this, um, issue where my internal and external worlds felt very like out of whack. Yeah. And, um, one of the big ones that kind of ties in with, uh, your book was my understanding of God, the mm-hmm. ideas that I had been given about God. And then my experience of the divine were very different <laughs> and that was confusing. Right. Um, yeah. cause you know, I was always taught like, Oh, well, you can't trust your experience. You can't trust your heart. It's just the ideas. Um, and that just failed. And so now I'm in a much different place where, uh, the, the internal and the external, I spent a lot of time, uh, bringing them back into alignment. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that like, really is, the, that really is the choice, Joshua, right? The choice is to gaslight our own conscience or to have integrity. Yeah. And, and, and when you feel like you have to compromise your integrity or gaslight yourself in order to be a Christian, something's wrong. <laughs> something's yeah, yeah, something's wrong. Like you wouldn't, you wouldn't wish that, uh, your spouse or your, partner or your your kids would be treated like that or treat themselves like that uh and we you know we don't see jesus treat people like that so i think that's a good that's actually a really good indication this is why like i I can't stand that when church leaders police people leaving the church sometimes they're leaving the church because it's a toxic jacked up crap show and they're they're actually moving away from harm which is what you would wish upon you know a friend and so i think you know treating yourself (laughs) <laughs> treating yourself to leaving the pastoral ministry sometimes is all you can do. Yeah. Yeah. It's I mean, interesting. Not, oh, sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead, Ben. Yeah. I was just going to say, not to make light, not to make light of that. Obviously, uh, Josh, I hear a lot of pain in your story. And we've talked with a lot of pastors who, <laughs> like, the result of, you know, going through our training and our coaching for leaders oftentimes does bring them to a crisis of, like, I don't know if I can do this anymore. And we do try to see that as actually a holy moment. And, you know, I think you know, to Matt's comment earlier that nobody, nobody chooses deconstruction in the sense that like, you know, it's, (laughs) it's nothing but inconvenience, you know, at the very best um, in terms of uh, what it forces you to uh, deal with and and confront. But we always, I, I try to see it always as a holy journey for people because it is the choice not to gaslight your conscience or, you know, choose to live without integrity. So it it's usually is a move toward life. It's a move toward integrity. And so it is, it's a holy thing that we try to honor actually. Yeah. That, that process though, of course you get into this in your book and I'm about to unpack it. I'm sure together for me, I was originally a PCA pastor, a very conservative Presbyterian PCA pastor. And now I'm an Episcopal priest and sometimes even barely hanging on. I feel on the prow of that ship, which is a very, very progressive denomination. Um, but that process when I was, uh, I was going through deconstruction before we called it deconstruction. Uh, but it was the process where I had been taught within that system, that paradigm, that lens on life to not trust myself, not trust my heart, not trust my experience and that I needed to kind of, uh, jettison any kind of uh, internal awareness away to trust the external framework that I was being taught was truth. And it's almost inherent to begin to actually trust yourself is so challenging. Um, Earlier, Matt, you talked about in this process, then you stripped it down to the studs um, of back to Jesus, which of course is what everybody from 
Augustine to Martin Luther to, you know, uh, Jonathan Edwards to uh, yeah. Cynthia Bourgeau and Richard Rohr. You know, everyone is, you know, all throughout the Middle Ages and beyond, they were quoting Augustine to try to strip it down to the studs because that gives them credibility, right? Of saying, no, we're going back to the original. And Episcopal right. Church has done the same. That's why we say the Nicene Creed and nothing later usually. So we're trying to go back to the studs. But 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 how what does that process look like? Because then how yeah. do you determine? I mean, for me, it was that 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 uh epistemology you know what what is how do we define truth how do we how do we you know know what is true and what is the 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 compass uh the tell you know that gives us our tell us for discerning what is true yeah. yeah yeah i think i think when a lot of people think they're having a faith crisis now some people think they're having a faith, cri faith crisis and really they're having like an epistemological crisis or a metaphysical crisis they they put the world Absolutely. together. They put together the world one way out here in the normal ordinary world, but then all their categories and constructs in the Christian world are formulated in a different consciousness. And so there's constant feedback and static there, where you're trying to stuff, um, you know, old you know old wine and into or new wine into old wineskins, and it's it just doesn't work. And so I. I I think for us, part of the reconstruction was a decolonization. So, you know, we we experienced. Uh, I think um, I don't know where you, I don't know where you guys are, but the last eight years in America, USA has been a just a giant. It's been jacked up. You know what I mean? There's been a confluence of cultural things, but also personal stuff. We experienced some um, uh, some church some church hurt. I guess you could say some like leadership abuse. And there was there were a, a lot of factors that came together of like we are missing something crucial. This is not like the kingdom of God that that Jesus talked about here. When when we're calling, you know, we're glorifying this and calling this good, and it's really it sucks. And so for us, then it was not just going back to Jesus, but submitting ourselves to mothers and fathers who didn't have our same blind spots, didn't have our same bugaboos and prejudices. Um, it even had different uh, philosophical traditions, right? So the Black Church, uh, um, liberation theology, womenist and feminist theologians, helping us recover and see what we couldn't see. And so, and and not just, um, and and so we looking basically at Jesus through their eyes, with their help, and then and then seeing all the stuff we couldn't see because we we're, you know, have this great communion that we're in some ways submitting to, right? Learning from. So for us, it wasn't just, we're going to be the ones who do it right. We're going to go back to Jesus, you know what I mean? And run back to Jonathan Edwards. But it's but it's more of like, gosh, we have, we keep abusing each other and harming each other. We don't know, we don't know the first thing about love. We're addicted to power. If we're not, if we're not dominating and we aren't at the center of supremacy in whatever culture we're in, we lose our biscuit. What is going on? What is happening? So for us, then, I think it was learning to see Jesus, learning to go back to Jesus with the help of, with other people who weren't like us. And that's specifically, ahead, sorry, buddy. Yeah, and specifically, and Matt got to this, but I think it's worth reiterating, like specifically people who weren't like us, but specifically uh, people who were, you know, we're white guys. And so, you know, the, the supremacy pyramid is we've always read from that, you know, perspective, not overtly, but, you know, you can't help 
being a white guy, you guys, you guys know what it's like. <laughs> um, but uh, but those voices that were different from us were also marginalized voices. They were they were um, yeah voices from the margins, voices of those who have been historically oppressed, and learning to trust that their perspective brings us like a helpful corrective for things that we just can't see if we only read from our from our own perspective. Yeah, I that I mean that has been huge just in my own experience as well. Um, especially because I I feel like what happened to me and and I think probably a lot of people would um would kind of resonate with this experience is I was sold that Christianity looks like this. You know, listeners, I'm holding my hands very close together. <laughs> when in, and like this is all Christianity is. When in reality, the Christian tradition is like this ginormous, beautiful, broad tradition that is filled with so much breadth and depth um and i was sold that it's only this one aspect of it and so being able to you know realize when i first you know started the whole deconstruction thing that i was only deconstructing like a very small (laughs) part of christianity and then finding out that wait a minute there's all these people like this whole like old beautiful tradition that like all the stuff that I'm saying and I'm angry about, they've been saying for like ever. (laughs) And so like this tradition is so much bigger, so much more beautiful. Mm -hmm. And so trying to introduce people to that, but also too, it's like the idea I think of, um, you know, we talk about the the body of Christ and um, when we're only listening to uh, white dudes from specifically for my experience, it was white guys within a conservative evangelical tradition and that's all I'm listening to, then the rest of the body of Christ is being silenced and we're not hearing it. We're only hearing one small aspect. And so we need all those other voices. Um, you know, like you were saying, liberation theology and black theology, feminist theology, womanist theology, um, you know, queer theology, all of those kind of things are still, they're voices of the body of Christ and a part of the tradition. And without them, we don't have the whole picture. So that's that's been my experience very much so. And, and speaking, it, it makes me think about obviously in your in your book you talk about the the importance the the critical nature of a, a paradigm, and and lens and you know I'm the executive director of a group called Second Breath and that's I I always say paradigms everything I mean it it is the lens through which we interpret and experience everything and as we know uh, our paradigms our lens on life are effectively invisible we just perceive it as reality until there are new data points. This, this makes it sound academic, but it's all very raw and organic and unfolding. Yeah. But until there are new data points that begin to uh, poke holes in it. And for yeah. and all of those theologies and perspectives you just listed are, you know, be, begin to uh, hit against our existing worldview. And we begin to say, this isn't working. But maybe uh, unpack that a bit, it, just in your experience, why you, you began the book with that in terms of what, what do you mean by the importance of paradigms or lens? Yeah, I think the... Um... I think what we really, you know, the what we realized is that there's something more going on uh, for most people who are undergoing a faith crisis or deconstruction, whatever you want to call it. There's something more going on than just like, "Mm, you know, what I used to have this belief, you know, on the shelf, and now I think I'm going to change it to this belief. But like, there was something more fundamental happening that was on the level of, wait, I I thought reality was like this, but now like. I'm having this experience, and usually for 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 most people, sometimes it's a uh, reading, right? Sometimes it's reading a, a liberation theologian or something like that. But oftentimes, if our if our paradigms are actually entrenched and in place well, and life is working for us in that way, if somebody comes with a framework outside of our paradigm, it just seems wrong. 
And so we actually just, you know, I've seen a lot of people just reject it say, well, that's, you know, that stuff is wrong. Like this is the stuff that's right. And so I think for most people, they have this crisis where um, the paradigm stops working for them internally. Like something is actually, and this is, you know, getting back to how this is a holy process, something is right internally for them. And I, you know, there's some mystical aspects to this that I, I think actually the Holy Spirit is doing something in people who are beginning to see this. I mean, I, I think that because I think you see Jesus do this all the time in the Gospels. He's always blowing up people's paradigms. Um, and so I think it's really important uh, to name that up front because um, it's it's work that is more than just replacing beliefs um, with other beliefs. It's work of learning to see reality uh, in a new way. And I think um, one of the reasons that we start with with uh, talk about paradigms is that we've seen over and over in our discipling of people in our local church, but also in our coaching uh, of leaders, that like getting people involved in practices isn't quite enough. Like embodiedness is actually crucial, and the last two chapters really focus on that. But if all you're doing is trying to take people from their existing paradigm, whatever it might be, and just say, hey, just do this practice and it'll like help you. We actually found that that sometimes did the opposite of help people. It wasn't even neutral. It was actually harming people because if you enter into, say, a practice of prayer with a paradigm of God being the kind of, you know, a capricious God, a uh, God who isn't really listening, a God who's distracted, um, you know, whatever that paradigm might be the and that's again that's more than a belief about god that's something that i have in my body in my bones i feel about god certain ways that, that that's more the paradigm level but if you engage in a practice of prayer and your imagination your paradigm for god is sort of is jacked up well then that actually that's a way of gaslighting yourself as well like you you can actually harm your soul by praying to that kind of God, that God that's in your imagination. So we just think it's it's important to start with that. And then the axioms actually name then several significant paradigm shifts for us and, and that we've seen or have been helpful for people to give them just handlebars. They're almost like little memes to to uh, just remind ourselves to put on the glasses. Try them on, you know, try on these new glasses. What would your life be like if God was always present and at work, et cetera? You know, it makes me one thing that's through my own work and working with people as well, recognizing that paradigms are not predominantly rational uh, and and reason based. Uh, you know, that's why when you have you, you have someone from different political persuasions, they begin to engage in a conversation that flows into an argument, mm -hmm. and they're trying to make it a point. It has it's nothing to do with convincing them. It is not it is not yeah. a reason based exchange. Uh, that yeah. that our paradigms are, I think, predominantly primal. Uh, and yeah. emotional and they they flow you know thomas keating summarizes kind of this three uh, uh core uh, needs that kind of make up that uh, uh vacuum in our hearts uh which are that 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 need for security that things are going to be okay that that need for identity that that we're worth something and the need for power some sense of healthy autonomy and that uh those three things in and of themselves intrinsically are not good or bad but if uh, depending on the paradigm through which we're attempting to fill them up, they can be very helpful or they can be very harmful. Yes. Um, but when we talk about uh, engaging that way, so when understanding paradigm is more than just like we're saying, again, in the West, we're so head centric. We just think uh, you're stressed out, read a book on stress. Um, 
Uh, and but but how do we then? I feel like for most people in the West, we're not particularly equipped for beginning to walk this inward journey. Uh, you know, into the place uh, where things get messy you know there's there's a reason people avoid uh, mm -hmm. the inward journey you know the, the only times they begin to experience it you know are when they wake up in the middle of the night and things are quiet and in that silence it seems like the uh maybe it was um I, for, I forget which author it was but she was saying that in the or the poet that says you know in in the inward journey are the 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 terrors that psychologists have warned us about uh but if we're willing to go in there then that's when we find i believe underneath the, that darkness and those terrors we find god but yes. what's so, so how do you begin to address that you've, you've named it a little bit already that acknowledging that you need to start with growing an awareness of your existing paradigm and perhaps it's a harmful lens on life that if you just go into a practice doubling down or it could actually calcify your already harmful worldview how do you begin to help people unpack their existing worldview and gently begin to open up to some potentially new realities yeah yeah real quick greg you mentioned a paradigm shift and i just want to point it out uh because i think this can be so abstract and it's we, if we can get concrete, I think it helps all of us not lose our bearings. But you talked about how we we consider ourselves driven by reason. Um, like we're, we're rational creatures, we make rational decisions. And actually, that's not true. Like our nervous system recruits our prefrontal cortex to justify what our nervous system wants. Right. And then the prefrontal cortex is like, I'm running this show. And it's not. Right. And so it, and that's actually a paradigm shift to understand that reason or rationality isn't bad or wrong. But it's not this, uh, it's not ruling with regnancy over your body. Like, and you're right about those needs that live in us and we seek and desire and want those things. Um, what, so one of the things that we do, train people to do, and Ben and I practice it, is, is, is essentially recovering mindfulness as a baseline foundational Christian practice. So minding your mind. We call them Kairos moments, which isn't unique to us or proprietary, but just notice things, right? So I get angry when my kids don't listen to me and the anger outstrips or outpaces uh, what maybe the situation requires or deserves. And then if you can start noticing those things, then learn to be curious about them. Instead of instead of fixing them or figuring them out or ignoring them or trusting them, <clears throat> learn to just sit with them with compassionate curiosity. Um, and so, so that's, that is actually, I, I don't know what to, I don't know how you learn or grow or change or transform unless you can be aware and be curious. And, and I, I think I, I never saw, I never saw this in Christ until I started paying attention to my own life and was curious about it. And now I can't not see it. Every story, Jesus is paying really close attention and he's being extremely curious with people. And I think that uh, if we want to be like Jesus and have his mind, we have to learn how to do those two things. Yeah, I think in my, I mean, that was a huge, huge shift for me, just this idea of awareness and um, being able to, you know, Anthony DeMello has a fantastic book called Awareness. Uh, that was yes, it's of, really good. Yeah, <laughs> it's kind of a gateway drug for me uh, into some other more fun stuff. Um, but yeah, just being able he's to- He's really funny too, isn't he? He's sneaky funny. Oh, he's like a monk that's like 
Yes. He tells terrible jokes, but they're somehow really funny. <laughs> but this, right. but well, Anthony, Anthony's, like, <laughs> Anthony's part of this, what we're talking about. Like he did most of his ministry in India. Mm-hmm. And so he's constantly doing this cross-cultural translation and it, it allowed him to see and name things that otherwise he might not have been able to, because he has to, he has to have an empathetic attunement to how other people see the world and it changed the way he saw the world. Sorry. I, I kind of geek out on Anthony. Go ahead. No, Sorry, you're Josh. good. No, yeah, you're good. Anthony is a good person to geek out. on. <laughs> I love his stuff, but just, yeah, the awareness bit, being able to step into that place that is aware of the situation you're having, you know, I call it like the the knower behind your knowing, uh, which again, it's not unique to me, um, but that's like, was huge for me. And then just being able to I- acknowledge um, emotions and feelings like I, you know, that I'm having. And then I, I steal this language from uh, Thich Nhat Hanh, but he always talks about holding our emotions, um, especially ones that we perceive to be negative, like anger, you brought up anger, holding that emotion the same way that a mother would, you know, a loving mother would hold a, a screaming infant. Yes. and seek to have compassionate understanding um, yeah. and loving kindness towards those things is has been huge um and as far as like paradigm shifts go for me that also was really big um and it's actually one of the things you talk about like your first <laughs> one of your first axioms it was my paradigm of god um i was so blocked off to wanting to have this kind of experiential knowledge of the divine mm-hmm. Because my mental image of God was like, I don't want to hang out with that guy. That guy sounds like a real ass. <laughs> why would I? Why would I want? That's scary, right? And so I had to. I actually used my intellect. I got in, um, you know, into open and relational and process theology that gave me a, an intellectual paradigm shift that allowed me then to say, okay, I actually do want to have this experiential knowledge, and then open myself up to things like centering prayer. Um, but that shift for me, uh, you guys call it God is love. So it's all about love. Um, that was big. I needed to have a God that Mm. genuinely, uh, was love in order to, uh, you know, shift my, my paradigm. And for me, you guys, I don't think quite say it this way, um, in your chapter, but, uh, for me, it was a shift from saying that God is loving to saying that God is love. Yes. Like I, I hold to this idea that God's essential nature, the essence of who God is, is love. Yes. Um, and talk about God much more as a verb than a noun, uh, mm-hmm. which is, again, is, can be weird language, but uh, that one was huge uh, for me. Mm-hmm. That was like ground zero. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That that's, um, that's really great, Josh. That's really helpful. I, and I think bring it back to, um, the question of how we help people, you know, with these paradigm shifts. I, I think the the reason, one of the reasons we put this one first is that so much depends on, so much depends on taking the risk that God might be love, <laughs> um, which is, it, usually the first few steps feel like that. It feels like a risk because like, what if, what if God's not love and I'm missing something and I'm going to get punished for this? Or, you know, like th- those are all the fears that kind of go through our heads. And you you mentioned earlier, you know, Matt talked about what we call Kairos moments. You mentioned earlier, like um, holding, especially our negative emotions with, um, uh, I think you said with compassion. Um, and so that for me has been really, really huge to know that I can hold these negative things. I think, you know, I, I grew up thinking that my negative emotions and my negative thoughts um, a sinful emotion, sinful thoughts, those were going to get me in trouble with God. And so I had to suppress them. I could not pay attention to them. I did not want to know if they were there because I, 
I was trying to like perform a good, a good boy routine for God here. Like, like, look, 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 I'm doing good. You know, I'm doing a good job. Um, but realizing or sort of being able to begin to take the risk that God is love allows me to actually hold those negative things with compassion for myself. Because I, you know, I think Jesus does this all the time in the gospels where he invites comparison. If you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more, how much more? And so like when I, when I learned, like I can have a sliver of compassion for my, the worst parts of myself, how much more might God actually just want to meet me here? And, um, you know, we, we actually use those categories. We name them slightly different things, Greg, that you mentioned those categories that Keating uh, talks about and other authors have talked about those things. Um, but a huge part of me learning to have compassion for myself was realizing that God is, God is love. So it's all about love. And I can meet God here because even when I'm at my worst, I know that underneath the misguided ways that I've pursued these things, that I'm made for security and belonging and significance. And I'm just probably trying to get one of those things. I'm afraid I don't have it. I'm just trying to get, you know, one of those things. And so my heart is pursuing a good thing yeah. and God wants to meet me here and, and talk to me about how I'm pursuing it because I, you know, I don't want to, you know, keep, you know, doing it in this way that's yeah. harming me or harming others. And so that that's just been huge. And like, like you mentioned, like that, that, that's a huge paradigm shift for, for many, many people just to be able to say, I can be honest about where I'm at because God is love and God will meet me here right in the middle of this, this mess, which is another way. I really appreciate that. One of the challenges, you know, I'm, I, I'm, I think I'm the only one here in the Bible Belt. I live in North Carolina, and just about every, every uh, on I-85, on I-40, there's signs everywhere. Jesus loves you. Every church says everyone, all are welcome, and it's all are not welcome. That's horseshit. Uh, and um, uh, also, Jesus loves you, but the, but it's it's nested within this paradigm of uh, convert now, or God will send you to conscious eternal torment. And um, so on, on one level, even hearing, you know, God is love. I'm like, it's, it's a, you know, being in the Bible belt, it's, it's, it's almost, uh, it, it gets me tense, uh, to really then have to unpack what that means. Because again, typically what I tried to do for a while when I was in the PCA was constantly fit a loving God into this, uh, inherently fear-based system. Yes. Um, and, and for me anyway, I know Josh with his journey to, fr from, you know, kind of the, the penal substitutionary atonement, uh, soteriology to, uh, process theology for me, you know, it was the same thing of unpacking, uh, mm -hmm. this, this system of, okay, I'm, I'm attempting continually to find a loving God in the system where he says, I love you, uh, but here's a knife at your throat and I want to hug you with one arm and I'm threatening you with conscious eternal torment with the other. I would, I don't want to do it, but I'll do it right. unless you just say this prayer and get it. And so right. to me, it was, it was an uh, unpacking for me. Ultimately it was, and recognizing too, historically that sub penal substitution atonement is a new kid on the block that was blossomed in the reformation. And for 1500 right. years, no one in the, all of the yeah. history of the church believed it, but then beginning to unpack. And for me, I'm at a place where if a system is fear-based, I inherently reject it out of pocket. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, I I will not submit to a fear-based system. Uh, and, but, but just, so I feel like on some talk, talk about stripping it down to the studs, Matt, you know, it, it really is beginning to unpack the whole thing and not trying to do it piecemeal, but willing 
giving permission to ourselves to begin to question the whole thing. Because otherwise, for me, I was going to throw the baby out with the bathwater. I yes. was just going to leave Christianity altogether. Um, and then, mm -hmm. but I didn't want to. There was these core parts of me that this is who I am, and 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 my love for for Jesus, who was my north star and my who I look to as my guru and leader. But but you know, in that process of, I guess, permission that you're not just talking about. Uh, kind of a, a, a piecemeal uh, unpacking, but the permission for people to really strip it down to the studs. And then how do they do that? You know, in a, in a way that doesn't feel like uh, what, what gives, what gives them the courage to do that? What gives them the boundaries to do that in a, in a healthy way? Uh, yeah. And, and obviously mm -hmm. you're with, with gravity leadership, your, your, your heart, I'm assuming is to create a community of safety where they're, they don't feel alone yes. um, and can do this in some safety, but yeah. You know, what, what do you feel like? I know you're describing, you have these eight axioms in your books. Would you describe those as kind of the, and, and by maybe guide rails is better than boundaries. Uh, mm -hmm. maybe, maybe like uh, compass points on this uh, journey that feels uh, pretty dark outside. You know, how, how would you unpack that? Yeah. Yeah. That's a good question. Like what kind of metaphor would we use for these axioms? Ben called them memes earlier. I, I just say, they're invitations to see the world in a different way. Try this. Try try thinking that God cares about all of it more than you do. What would that change? What would that unlock for you? What do you where are you kicking against the goads? Maybe maybe you could use your feet for something else. You know, like so so it's an invitation to simply like it's a what if or a maybe, right? It's a what if or a maybe. Um, you know, what if God is love? Well, do we know what love is? <laughs> Usually we don't, right? Like, uh, I think your experience, Greg, as a PCA pastor, where you're in a fear-based system and you, and you have to, you have to call things love that aren't loving. Um, like the, you know, there's a reason for that. Like we could, uh, not to put all your listeners to sleep, but there's philosophical traditions, right? Nominalism is that God is love. And that doesn't correspond at all to how we experience love, because however God defines love is love, and who are we to judge God, right? Well, this is a novel sort of philosophical construct that leads us into calling evil things good, right? It's love because God does it. And, and that's not at all how Jesus, like Ben mentioned earlier, reasons in the scripture. He actually says that your behavior is analogous and coherent with God's behavior. You can actually trust something about who God is with corresponding sort of uh, reference, reference like good and beautiful. So part of the issue is, I think we don't know what love is. Secondly is we have these constructs that in, uh, inhibit us from actually seeing this isn't love, this is fear. I'm just this, you know, I'm just a twerking amygdala. And that's, <laughs> that's not the kingdom of God, right? And so, and so we have to be actually able to we have to see what we have to see love. We have to see like, well, how did I end up calling evil good mm -hmm. and convince, trying to convince other people of that? Yeah. And then if I were to get to know love, how would I start? How would I start in view of that mercy offering my body yeah. as a, as a living sacrifice? Yeah. Yeah. And to like, just to double click on the, the practical aspect of your question, Greg, where like, I, I don't think we've ever thought about these as guardrails or boundaries. 
it's it's not like all right if you're going to get into our training like these are the things you have to believe about god but they are like matt said these invitations and so oftentimes the way that it works and this gets back to like asking questions kairos moments that kind of thing part of the way that we as leaders try to elicit and we do this in our church and you know through gravity part of the way we try to create an environment where it's safe for people to notice things and to you know and to and to imagine new ways of seeing god is is to ask those questions and as a follow on as a follow up to you know hey what if god was love or what if god was meeting you right in the middle of this mess or what if god was present and already working um there's usually a, a practical experiment of trust that comes on the heels of that. What would that change for you? And we just listen to how that would change. And then we we try to encourage and come alongside and bring some support to say, well, why don't you try that? Just try it, you know, like just experiment. Nope, nothing's at stake. You know, just see, like act as if God is love this week, you know, like act as if, and that's not just a mental exercise, but that might be, you know, that might relate to a very specific situation in somebody's life that changes how they'd respond if they could trust that God was present and working versus I got to get God into this situation so that it can change. Like, and then we just encourage them, take that action and see what happens. Let's just see what happens. You know, I think that's faith. You, you know, it's interesting. It's, it's listening to that process. It's a very, first of all, it's very gentle. No, no one changes unless they feel safe. Right. And so, um, and so you're creating an environment uh, of safety for folks, but you're also, you're actually <laughs> slowly inviting them to actually trust their own hearts and experience. Um, you're, you're actually slowly inviting them to say, well, of course, in the words of Jesus, the kingdom of God is within. And it's this, that it's not just that, that we've, we've been taught to ignore that or that the heart's wicked above all things. And, you know, to, 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 we've been taught not to trust ourselves for the external framework and what you're doing is a slow process of actually encouraging people to listen yeah. to their own hearts and experience which i think terrifies uh, the institution yes um and you can't um, control anybody by doing that oh. right right i mean it's just same thing with 500 years ago with you know uh the shift of power to being in the the word of god now granted that didn't work out so hot but it never does in in 500 more years this this system we're talking about will be rife with shit but that's evolution and that's the process but I, but i do think that this movement of actually learning to trust our hearts that was that was i mean the big thing for me again this sounds academic how we're describing it but in, when i was pastoring that pca church we had a one thing that just rocked my world with e exposing this dissonance between my heart and my uh my faith system we had a, a gay couple that was started to attend the church that i planted and they were amazing she, they were just they they attended every sunday every event every gathering they were so invested this was the first church he'd ever been to and even though we we're pca what i was doing at the time was kind of a don't ask don't tell policy like no one knew we were pca church it wasn't anywhere on the bulletin it wasn't on the website like it was a hiding of that reality mm -hmm. um and i just thought if we can just keep everything on the down low and just love each other uh it'll be fine and i remember maybe about six months in to this couple attending i got a call one sunday afternoon after church and they said that they found out we're PCA and they went on the national PCA website and they found this, the, the theology, the doctrinal stances on homosexuality. It was a sin and it was wrong. Um, and they just asked me point blank, do you think that our relationship, our loving marriage is sinful? Uh, and I was just, I mean, total exposure. I almost threw up and it was mm -hmm. this, I was saying, I was hemming and hawing and yesing and knowing, and they felt so 
utterly brokenhearted. I mean, they, they, it shattered them. This was the first faith community they were a part of. And now they felt completely betrayed, lied to. Mm. And I just thought, and, and fortunately, eventually I was able to, to reconcile that relationship with them. But I thought it was this utterly painful process. This is, I got into this because I want to love people and encourage, and, and here I am with this external framework of dissonance. And so it just got me questioning why, why, is my heart longing to bless and encourage this couple? If there's two, and where I am now, if there's two people in the world that are committed to walk life together and explore and dive into what it means to grow together in intimacy, trust, love, and commitment, I'm going to do everything in my power to support them. And I don't care if they're gay or straight or transgender or whatever the situation is. But at the time, I was really allowing myself to be so hemmed in by this external framework that I shattered these people. And so it, it got me that where do I trust my heart or do I trust? And, and eventually what happened for me in terms of uh, uh, epistemology is I actually kind of in, in your framing, I said, well, what if I actually trust my heart uh, mm-hmm. and allow it to define more of my paradigm uh, than this external framework that came down from the Reformation through Scotland down to primarily uh, white men wearing sweater vests. And there's a lot of people in the PCI I love. I love to death. So forgive me. I just, I do. I love, I have and some sweater vests brothers and sisters. have some affection for sweater vests? I, I don't. Look, I'm not condemning okay. sweater vests. Okay, I'm not condemning right. it inherently uh, or ontologically, um, <laughs> but I do have some issues with it. But anyway, okay. it was, but, but as I actually gave permission uh, for myself to follow my heart, it was wild. All of a sudden, it was this profound alignment. And for the, in many ways, for the first time in my life, I was actually experiencing the fruit of the spirit that was described of what would be uh, defining from the inside out yes. of love and joy and peace. And, and, and I wasn't when I was in this fear-based system, but anyway, yeah. it was this process. What, what I'm hearing from you and, and whether someone wants to agree with me or not on some doctrinal issue, what I just say, whatever, that's fine. It, we're all in our journeys. But in terms of the heartbeat of your of this process of yours is slowly equipping people to get beyond uh, placing all their weight on an external framework and actually beginning to trust their yeah. own heart and experience. Is that, is that true? Would you would you kind of define it that way? Or would you nuance it even more than that? Yeah, I think I would say yes to that. Um, I, I think that's a new way for me to be thinking about the way that, to talk about this. And so I, I'm appreciating that, actually. Um, but I think you're right. And I think this I I, I keep coming back to something that uh, uh, has been mentioned earlier on the podcast. You know, Matt mentioned nominalism and sort of these philosophical frameworks. But I think there was one of the fundamental shifts for me was learning that I could sort of evaluate the content, uh, like the goodness of um, so, something isn't good or bad just because God says it's good or bad. I think that that is a significant paradigm shift for a lot of people, especially coming from conservative backgrounds, to think like, well, it's bad because God said it's bad. And you can read these passages, and here's the way of understanding the scriptures that says it's bad. But you actually talk about, well, you know, it all starts to fall apart when you say, well, why is it bad? And then there's no content. Like, so, so this gets back to like, even naming God as love. Like God is love. And that actually means something because love means something. Like the, the reason that uh, John wrote that in the epistle of John is because it would have meant something. Like if the, if the only thing that is love is just whatever God does, then he could have just said, well, God is God. 
Well, no, he said God is love, and he's trying to make a point about love. And so this is that there's a common understanding here. And so I think I'm I'm hearing some of in your story, Greg. I think I'm hearing some of what these axioms are trying to do is is yes, help people trust their hearts, help people trust that like okay, if something doesn't feel loving, um, it might not be. <laughs> you know, it it not you know like there are people who sometimes don't feel that they're being loved because they're not getting their way or, you know, something like that, but just encouraging the curiosity to say, okay, well, why, why does this bother me so much? Yeah. Or why does, you know, just, uh, and uncovering that. And, and I appreciated your words too, about just it being a gentle process, but that, that is kind of how these axioms function. They name, uh, that they're most helpful for people who are already a little bit on this journey to be like, wait a second. You know, like a, a story like you uh, just shared, Greg, um, and they're, they they usually then function as ways to just solidify and just encourage and pat on the back and say, it's okay, you can keep exploring this. You can keep exploring what this would mean for you. Yeah. Yeah. We, I mean, we have these axioms already we use to keep ourselves locked, Greg, where you were. You know, the heart is deceitful above all else. Who can, who can understand it, right? I mean, this is like, that's the top 10 fighter verse for a PCA pastor. Right. It's gotta be. And um I, I think I think um you know there is this 1980s kind of neoliberal pop psychology, right? If it feels so good, how can it be wrong? Or let your heart be your guide, kind of the Disney princess uh way of life. Um, and so I think a, there's a lot of Christian allergy to that kind of thinking. But I want to I want to recenter the conversation whenever there's an allergy to that on on Christ. Um, I'm, I'm sort of a, uh, I'm really neurotic about Jesus and, and at almost every interaction, Jesus is doing at least two things. One, he's helping people own what they want, which is he's helping people excavate their heart and reckon with it. <clears throat> and two, he's looking for people he can trust. <laughs> you know, there's this beautiful verse at the end of John chapter two, where Jesus cleanses the temple and does all this stuff in Jerusalem. And it says a lot of Jews believed in Jesus that day, but Jesus didn't believe in any of them because he knew their hearts. A bunch of cotton-headed ninny muggins, you know, that's what John's saying. But then at the end of the gospel and the synoptics, Jesus is like giving up all the authority in the cosmos to people who doubt, you know, in Matthew 28. So I, I think that, I think that Jesus's plan for human redemption and flourishing is to help people recover their heart so that he can trust them with as much power as they can possibly bear. And this is completely scandalous to Western conservative evangelical Christianity, right? Because Christ is helping us recover who we are and setting us free to do what we want. And what we want to do is we want to tell people you can't trust yourself and I you have to listen to me and I'll control you. I will bind you up. And it's the exact opposite move. This is why religion, church, theology gets toxic. It's because we don't know what love is. We don't know how love works. And we're doing the opposite thing in at least two ways that Jesus did. Josh, go ahead, man. I've got about 50 thoughts, but you go ahead, man. I've been flattering <laughs> on with my comments. No, it's good. I, uh, I think you named something so important because the, I don't know. I think this this whole idea, right? It's like for freedom, Christ has set us free, and like so many people don't have that experiential freedom. 
And a lot of, I think that freedom comes from how I would talk about it is recognizing, like you're saying, I like that language, excavating the heart. But for me, it's like excavating the heart to realize that the deepest core, like most truest part of who I am is divine love. Um, you know, I'm a fan of theosis and, you know, that kind of stuff. Um, I might start a new campaign called like make sanctification theosis again or something like that. Um, <laughs> I'd buy the hat. Uh, yeah, right. <laughs> nice. There we go. For the point zero two percent who would understand what it meant. Right. <laughs> I love right. a good joke that only eight people know. <laughs> right. Yeah, it's the best kind. <laughs> uh, but yeah, and like that for me, that freedom has come in being well, like one, and Greg and I have talked about this before. Like when we get broken, we can either just choose to be like broken people or broken open like completely broken apart or, or cracked open, broken open. Mm. And for me, like trying to recognize that and realize that like, I didn't, I was tired of just being like broken and angry. <laughs> and so that invitation, what would it look like to, to be broken open instead? Um, and then trusting my reality, trusting my experience with the divine and realizing like, oh no, I have this experiential knowledge now of a God who is love of a God who does indeed look like Jesus. And then once, once that experiential knowledge set in for me, that's, that's what I refer to as faith. Like that's the, the, the ground, the, the, the ground that I stand on, which then allows for me to mess with my beliefs. If that makes sense, because I'm grounded deep in this reality, this experiential knowledge that I have. And then all these beliefs out here, like, you know, whatever it is, atonement theories, hell, you know, soteriology, whatever people want to talk about, eschatology, um, you have this freedom to do those things or the freedom to look into other traditions. Like I have found so much depth and wisdom within uh, Buddhist traditions that have been super helpful. Um, and I've started reading, you know, about like, like esoteric Judaism, which has been a lot of fun. Um but it's all, it all became grounded in this paradigm shift of, again, a God who is love. And also for me, um, your, your second axiom that God is always present and at work. Um, just, I think that just sounds like good, like orthodoxy, right? Like if we talk about on the present, <laughs> but so many sure. people act and behave as if, as if that's not true. Um, but this is why I love open and relational theology, because it, I have this concept of a God that like I genuinely believe in whom we live and move and have our being. Um, and that God is always present. God is always at work. And I, you know, as a process thinker, I tend to view reality as an organic whole and um, we're a part of that whole. And I think part of what, um, when I talk about salvation or the kingdom of God, I'll talk about opening our eyes and being able to see that reality and I think part of one of the things Jesus was trying to show us is that we aren't disconnected from God, that we aren't disconnected from each other and that we're not disconnected from creation, but rather it's an integrated whole. And then when we start behaving and acting in ways as if that reality is not true, that's when shit hits the fan because now we're going against the grain of, of reality, the grain of the universe. So for me, yes. like that was another just major yeah paradigm shift for me um yeah that, yeah I, I think the uh i think like following on from what matt said uh earlier and josh what you're saying about theosis 
Um, cause a, a lot of times the objection when we, when we talk like this, you know, and people are like, wait, 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 wait a second. Did Jesus just want us to do what we wanted? Like, even if it's wrong, right. Even if it's bad. And I, I just think about like, yes, actually, because think about the rich young ruler, right. Jesus helps excavate what his real desires are. Right. And he, he actually sees that his desire for the kingdom is real. It's a real thing. Right. Um, initially, it seems to me that Jesus is trying to put him off. Like, I'll just obey the commandments. You got this, buddy. You know, like you're doing great. Um, and uh, and he says, no, 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 totally, no. I know you, you, you just turned into Tony Soprano there. Hey, 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 kid, hey, hey you, listen, can, you got this. Just do the commandments. What, what's wrong with you? You just do the commandments. You get the kingdom of heaven. <laughs> I like it. I like this part of I like this okay. side of Ben. I keep uh, sorry to I interrupt. Keep going. Yeah, Sorry, I wasn't trying to do that. Um, but I'm I'm thinking about it now. I'm, I'm going to mm-hmm. explore this mm-hmm. more. Just be more self-conscious. That always helps me. Uh huh. That'll be helpful. Lost my train of thought. Oh, rich young ruler. So uh, Jesus seems to kind of put him off and just say, like, obey the commandments. You got this. You're fine. And he says, no, no, no. I know I'm missing something. I'm watching you and something different is is happening with you and I want it. And Jesus says, oh, great. Well, here's here's how to get it. He basically just tells him how to get it. But what he does is he excavates this this rich young ruler's heart and exposes the fact that Oh, he he's not yet. He doesn't want it bad enough yet to give up the thing that he truly, you know, and again, he's pursuing probably security, probably belonging, probably significance. All of it is wrapped up in his wealth. And he walks away sad because he can't have both (laughs) at the same time. But I think Jesus encourages this over and over in the Gospels. And I think in us, in our lives, because it's the quickest route to goodness, actually. It's the quickest route to theosis, to use to use um, your point, Josh. And I think Jesus is confident that the, the goodness of every human is wrapped up in the ultimate good, which is God. And if you keep pursuing goodness, you're going to find God. And so I think it's, it's always a detour if we have to like uh, put boundaries on people's desires. It's a detour if we have to say, "Well, well, don't do that because that's bad," or you, you know, you're not, you're not, you know, you're going to get lost if you go down that road. I think Jesus has this confidence that says, "No, you'll find God if you just keep pursuing what's good. You'll find God. So go for it. Keep your wealth. See how that works out for you, and then hmm. who knows? Maybe twenty years from now, you'll want the kingdom." Yeah, that that really struck. You know, uh, I don't know if you read. Uh, Cynthia Borgia's The Wisdom Jesus, but she talks about this idea of the, the wisdom tradition. Um, and it was a, a very understood milieu of spiritual teacher in the first century is primarily far more Eastern than uh, Platonic uh, in, in its assumptions. But it was it was less about, uh, you know, of course, if you if you view the bulk of Jesus's teachings, uh, they would not be popular in the West um, because usually he left people scratching their heads with intention and they didn't know. It wasn't a TED talk with three cogent points and an emotional landing. You know, it was something that was confusing to people because it was meant to stick, you know, be a stick in the spokes of their existing lens on life and then kind of openly then invite people into a whole new way of, of seeing everything. But I want to get back, Matt, you said something that was a stick in the spoke in, in my process. And I'm, and I just want to unpack it with you and just and for both of you to help process it with me. But I love, I love this idea of a, this, this defining it, I think, especially scandalous within Western, particularly evangelical Christianity of those two pieces of inviting people to their, in Thomas Merton's language, their true self, uh, their hearts, uh, and then subsequently looking for people to trust with, with power. Uh, 
so so within i do think that that is, that would be shocking to most western christian perspectives um and and i realize just hearing it through through my unique journey and and where i've processed i'd love for you to unpack this for me there's a the the sticking point for me is a distance between the two um between and i don't think you and maybe that's why i'm asking for clarification the that i really absolutely believe that when jesus was talking to the rich young ruler or jesus is talking to the nicodemus or the man who has been by the pool for 30 some odd years uh, that in all these cases he is inviting them to discover their true selves uh and um and in that uh I, I guess to me, uh, my inclination would be to blend the two and almost say that when we are our true selves, that inherently within the way that the universe is created and God has made things flow, that that is when, if we want to say Christ's power or if we want to say divine energy will flow through us. But the, I guess for me, one of the issues I have within my previous fear-based system, and this is why you can unpack my trauma with me uh, live on air, but you know, in my... <laughs> In, in my uh in my previous system this hierarchical notion of the divine at what point okay my true self but then jesus is judging at what point he can trust me and then doling out the amount of power that will flow yeah. through me yeah, yeah, based yeah. on yeah. and i and so so, I'm, so you, you get what i'm saying so I'm, maybe just nuance that a little bit for me yeah yeah i mean you're kind of naming this retributive meritocratic right operating system that we have right right which is antithetical to love yeah and so and so it's see this is just good to like mine out dig it up and be like um uh, i i want the love of god to rid me of everything that opposes the love of god and and one of those things is this meritocratic retributive notion that uh that god is somehow lording <laughs> he's a gentile ruler <laughs> You know what I mean? And he's not. Uh, God, God isn't a Gentile ruler. Uh, the second thing is, I think there's this beautiful, I think it's Richard Rohr, somebody else talked about how we don't just think our ways into new ways of living, we live our ways into new ways of thinking. And there's this beautiful interplay between like just doing an experiment of operating with God's goodness and God's pleasure with God's resources that then doesn't unlock some kind of God box as though we're making, let's make let's make a deal. We're not playing that game with God, right? <laughs> Behind door number two, you get a goat if you don't do it right. No, it's like, it puts us in the way of grace. We, you know, to use some of your language, we actually get into the flow of how everything holds together. We line up and become synchronous with the way reality works. So, so it's, it's not that God's got a volition and we have to cut ourselves and dance in order to get him to be good to us on a mountaintop. But rather, we can choose right here and now to operate with the common sense logic of love. And that puts us in a place where we can't not benefit. We can't not benefit. Does that, am, I, am I getting at your question? Yeah, you really are. And, and, and it just reiterates what I said earlier about to me this whole approach that you're you're bringing to the table is it, i just again feel like it's so gentle because you're, you're you're not trying to convince people to uh shift their doctrinal positions right. you're, you're not you're not saying give up this doctrinal stance for this doctrinal stance right. uh, we need you to go from conservative to liberal you're <clears throat> you're inviting people to gently open 
up to experience uh, a new reality um, and then trusting the the flow of that to their process uh, and, and and you're not having to define that it just reminds me of uh, when when asked you know can anything good come out of Nazareth and he just says come and see and I just yeah. feel like you're you're this is just an invitation of you know come and see just check it out and 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 it's nested in what Josh was referencing earlier with Paul's response to the philosophers in Athens that in God we live and move and have our being that this flow that we're describing to me is that we are completely immersed in divine presence that right yes. now we're, we're splashing around. We are yes. marinating in divine love and presence. And the issue is simply growing an awareness of what it already is. We're not attaining, we're not earning, we already have it. And what you're describing is trusting that that's reality. Yes. And, and as, as the, as a presupposition of, uh, as the assumption of your belief of, of how you approach things and that you're simply creating space that if folks are willing to entertain the possibility that then their eyes will be open and realize in, in the words of Gerard Manley Hopkins, that the world's charged with the grandeur of God. Yes. And it, and it fucking has been the whole time. Yes. And, yes. and we're just slowly <laughs> opening up to see that. Yeah. yeah, and yeah, and this this is this is a fundamental shift. You could read this book and be like, I gotta try harder to believe harder that this is true. Right. But this that is that is a I I want to just suggest that the striving to control all things mm -hmm. is actually the human problem. <laughs> like like we could if we could boil sin down to one thing, it's self-willfulness. Being in charge and control, and then and then and then uh, trans transferring that onto other people and trying to control them too. But what this is an invitation. We use this this language a lot. Surrender. Just surrender to the fact that God's present and at work. Consent to love. You think trying to love more is hard? <laughs> Try consenting to it. You know, it, which is a different kind of hard, right? And so. Yeah, it, it's a completely different way of being. Mm -hmm. You know, the easy yoke should feel like an easy yoke, Greg, you know? <laughs> and, and I think that that's what we're inviting people. Try this lens on, mm -hmm. and it gives you access to a way of operating in the world that is a surrender and consent into this field, this wide open playing field of love. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, and I... I think that's one of the reasons why I love so much how you end the chapters with these experiments of trust. I love like, I think that's a fun thing to name it, this experiment of trust, like, tr you know, try this thing. Um, and that, I think the experiment of trust idea too um, plays well into the one of your axioms that I think is so important, which was um, that God transforms us through embodied participation. So it's this invitation to actually live into something like you've been talking about this whole time um, as if it were true and kind of see what happens. Like um, uh, our buddy, uh, Trip Fuller, he tells this um, story about when he was a pastor, he used to do these um, classes that people could come to. And it was kind of for people in the church who were like, maybe their you know, significant other dragged them to church, but they're not really church people. Uh, or maybe they were atheist or, you know, whatever. And they would have this group and they would do what he called experiments in truth. And uh, one of them that he named that I thought was really powerful was they would uh, pick one teaching of Jesus, just one. And they happened to do, uh, you know, don't judge others. And the group agreed 
that whenever they judged somebody during the week, they would text to the group in a group chat. Um, I just, you know, judged Greg for saying fuck on my podcast. Um, and then the group would respond back and <laughs> they would say, write a prayer. Lord, give Josh the eyes to see Greg the way that you do, like unconditionally loved and accepted. And then he said that like every time he did this experiment, after about two or three days, people would start texting in their own name. Every time. Josh just judged, judged Josh. <laughs> oh, yeah. And then yeah. the group would text back, God, you know, Lord, give Josh eyes to see Josh the way that you do, unconditionally loved and accepted. And so that's there's an embodiment there that when you um, actually live into these realities, then I think that's, you know, for epistemological standpoint, that something is true then, right? Mm -hmm. um, or like Peter Rollins has this really, you know, piffy video that I like to post around Easter uh, where he says, of course, I deny the resurrection. Everyone who knows me knows I deny the resurrection. And he's like, anytime I participate in an unjust system, anytime I silence the voices of those on the margins, I deny the resurrection. And he's mm. like, but every once in a while, I affirm the resurrection, you know, when I do these things. So mm. it's like this, instead of just, you know, going to church on Sunday and saying, oh, well, I said the Nicene Creed, I checked my, you know, ideological boxes, now I'm a good Christian. It's like, okay, well, if you're now out on the street, not loving your neighbor as yourself, then you're denying that creed that you just <laughs> said you believe in. Mm -hmm. So that embodiment is so key. And I think that's one of the, like the biggest missing pieces um, in discipleship today. Cause I think discipleship is just about teaching people correct ideas. Yeah. And so I love what you guys are doing with, with this more holistic, you know, to use language, Greg yeah. and I like, um, connecting the head, the heart, and the body, all three centers yeah. of knowing, bringing them in alignment. And um, yeah. yeah, that's really good, Josh. I, I, I appreciate that. Um, and you're giving me a little bit of language because to, to name why, you know, embodiment and embodied faith um, are different from behavior modification, which is that that's been, you know, part of the, uh, you know, one of the bad aspects i think of disciple the our legacy of discipleship uh, in the especially in the white um evangelical church is just that it, it has been primarily either a head thing or just a behavior thing um and so and i think maybe even connecting some of these other dots i think the difference is in the posture in which we engage in embodiment and so we can engage in embodied practice in a very rigid controlled, fear-based way. I got to get this right. So God will be pleased with me. So I'm not punished. So I can, you know, have a better life, et cetera. Or we can engage in it as an experiment with playfulness, with curiosity, with gentleness, you know, uh, just playing around with something um, is that's a totally different posture that I think does tend to open us up to the reality that we are swimming in an ocean of God's love. You know, it's interesting. We actually, this is second breath where, where I work, you know, we've been around for about 30 years, but we, we taught a class. Originally it was called, uh, putting on the mind of Christ. And it was, 
defining that mind of course we got to unpack mind right um but it's it's defining it as we, we define it as these three centers of intelligence that it is that there's a brilliance in the mind but we also believe there's actually a brilliance of the heart and there's a brilliance in the body um and you know in the west we've been taught that you know the the mind is the king the end all be all and uh that the body's just there to kind of carry around the beautiful mind um and if if the mind's this priceless stradivarius violin then the the heart is kind of a schmaltzy you know uh kazoo you know and the body is like a, a <laughs> rubber band twanging ukulele and and just realizing but the, you know there's this this gorgeous brilliance in in all three and yeah. so and even even you know uh, josh i love that aspect of understanding embodiment as like you're describing earlier god not just as noun or doctrine not as noun but as verb as it, it only is the truest true when it's embodied in action um, and then also uh, earlier, Matt, you were describing some neuroscience uh, and the way the brain operates. And 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 two, uh, if we actually want to, you know, experience love uh, on on a body level, on a felt level, then these are these practices that can help us get there. You know, that if we are, um, you know, one thing that, for example, that I do with people. I do. I teach a lot of different breath modalities and breathing modalities. And one thing I found, if you watch an, and, and I know we're getting long here, so we'll wrap up soon. But this ties in. But if you watch like an infant sleeping, you you guys, you've got a bunch of kids that when an infant's sleeping, their their whole body moves when they breathe. Like their arms move. It's like they're they're completely unbraced and relaxed. Their whole body moves. And I guarantee, once you hit about maybe three, four, or five, uh, that stops that all of a sudden th that just their belly moves and the rest there. And what happens is we get older, anytime, you know, there's a, a shock or a noise, you know, we jerk and respond and slowly that tension gets locked in our neuromuscular memory. And by the time we're our age, especially my old ass at 50, by the time we get, you know, th this age, most of us are only breathing with like maybe 50% of our lung capacity. The And we don't even know it. You know, the rest has been kind of stuck in tension. And, and I, gen my belief is that, that tension that's locked in the neuromuscular memory is not just body tension. I believe there's muscle memory there that is actually emotional in nature. Yes. Um, and it's, it's, and it's like a backpack full of rocks. And it usually takes me three full one hour sessions with someone to actually get them to take a full breath. Mm. And then once, it, and, and then, and I believe it's not just so that they're functioning so they can have more oxygen and that's helpful for our body system because that's what we run on. But I believe in the process of learning to unbrace that long held tension in the neuromuscular memory, we're actually releasing on a body level, this backpack full of rocks that we've been carrying around with us that we might not be able to process cognitively so much, but will radically transform our experience and the capacity to, to receive divine love and allow it to flow through us. So I, I love that last point. God transformed us through embodied participation. I guess maybe we can wrap up since that's the last axiom in your book, but maybe wrap up with some of the, the, the multiple facets of what you mean by embodied and how that plays out and then our experience to both receive and offer uh, love. Yeah. I, you did a great job of, of naming this. I, I'll get to your question, but as you were talking, I, I had this wondering that I wonder if the entire Western philosophical tradition that is so hyper that fetishizes, uh, you know, cognition, discursive reason, et cetera. <laughs> that's so true. It fetishized. That's okay. Sorry. I'm just amening that. Go ahead. Sorry. Yeah. Uh, that, that I wonder if it's not just a, a trauma response, like a collective multi-generational epigenetic trauma response. Um, 
I remember listening to a Bessel van der Kolk interview where he he talked about Northern and Western Europeans being some of the only people, uh, people groups, cultures that didn't have like rituals to deal with trauma. Uh, and the only ritual that Northern and Western Europeans developed to deal with trauma was drinking alcohol. And he called, he called, he called Northern Europeans a, a post-alcoholic culture. And so as I, I, th I think that we have stored up so much, uh, resistance in our bodies that we can't access through our prefrontal cortex. And we're locked up, we're bound up, right? We're, we're demon-possessed, man. Like, we need a deliverance. So when we talk about, when we uh, culturally, as white Westerners, so when we talk about embodied participation, we're trying to reclaim the ground of belief is, is what you do. And it's extremely uh, it it's extremely like tangible, concrete. So how do you know if you believe in love? Well, you live in it. You you do it. You do you you love. That's how you believe in love, right? Uh, uh, the picture I I often give is like you know when when Jesus is walking on water to Peter and they're in the boat and Peter they're all freaking out and Peter says, Hey Jesus, if that's you, tell me to come out there. And Jesus says, Yep, it's me. Let's go. Get out of here. Like. <laughs> he doesn't just like close his eyes and pat his chest and go, Jesus, that is so good that I'm going to hide your word in my heart. So I may not sin again. Will you just say it again, Jesus, so I can hear it again? And then Jesus, I'm going to journal about that until I believe it. You know, that's just not, he just gets out of the freaking boat. Right. And like the faith, he doesn't muster faith and then walk. His walking is faith. And so, so what we mean by embodied participation is the reason we're told to work out our faith with fear and trembling is because it often is fearful and we tremble. Like we got to work it out, right? We got to work it out. So we want to reconnect people to their bodies, reconnect faith into the arena that's very, very uh, particular, concrete, tangible here and now. Versus some abstract, you know, some abstract kind of ledger somewhere where I've got the right definition of love, you know, so that, that we're trying to do those two things, uh, among other things, with that axiom. I love it. Beautiful. Yeah, thank you. That's that's really, uh, I feel like a gorgeous summary. Yeah, for sure. Well, man. Um... I man, I feel like we could just keep talking all day, but <laughs> I'm, I'm it is. I'm technically supposed to be at work right now, but um <laughs> this is way more fun. There. Um yeah, so but they're you know, they're cool. They know they they know I'll show up at some time. Mm. Um <laughs> that is one nice thing about working in a brewery, is like brewers, not all of them, so uh, but a lot of brewers tend to start like their day like after everyone else has been doing it for like six hours. <laughs> uh, no, this, this has been a lot of fun. Um, I have really thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. I really enjoyed your book um, a lot. I've actually, I've already recommended it to uh, a bunch of people. Um, mm. I, I had, <laughs> I received it before I even knew it came out and I texted uh, a former friend of mine named Rachel 
um, it was like, Rachel, like you, she, she still works with students. And I was like, Rachel, this is a fantastic resource. Like snag this. And then she was like, Josh, it's not out yet. And I was like, oh, I didn't even realize. <laughs> My bad. I just pre-ordered it. So, so um, yeah, it's, it's really, it's honestly, it's a fantastic resource. I love, um, I love what you guys have, have done with it. Um, even, mm. I mean, as somebody who uh, often, it's going to make me sound like an ass, so forgive me. But <laughs> I feel like there's a lot of writings that are becoming popular today within uh, the Christian tradition um, that feels like stolen wisdom. They're trying to tap into mm. uh, the mystics or the more contemplative aspects of the faith, but it, it's still um, wrapped up and bound in their system. And Ooh. so it feels like it's not the whole thing. It, it, it seems fake or like, again, like stolen wisdom. Um, but talking to you guys and also reading your book, um, it's clear to me that this is not just ideas to you guys, but it rather is something that is embodied um, and that you guys are, are living out of. And that this comes from not just intellectual ideas, but like real life experience. Um, and that's huge to me because for me, the other stuff is just bullshit. It's just ideas. Mm -hmm. and but this is not like that so thank you guys for for what you guys are doing um and listeners do yourself a favor and and pick a copy up yeah thanks for saying thanks for saying that it's very kind and thanks for having us on yeah it's been a yeah. it's been a delight yeah. yeah thanks ben and matt it's been great to be with you yeah we'll we'll be sure to uh link uh your book as well as uh gravity leadership uh your website uh in our show notes so listeners can check out gravity leadership as well sounds good sweet well, thank you guys so much. And uh, listeners, as always, uh, go in peace, guys. Bye.